0: Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 288, Evolving Artemis Mission Operations. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, scientists, engineers, astronauts, all to let you know what's going on in the world, of human spaceflight, and more. Artemis 1 was a critical demonstration of key technologies needed for the next generation of deep space exploration. The Space Launch System took its maiden flight, and Orion was pushed to its limits, while flight controllers monitored the 25-day operation. The flight test was deemed a success. Months later, the Artemis II crew was announced, preparing for the next step in the Artemis program, a flight test with humans. As these milestones were achieved, and as these months pass, the work to prepare the flight control teams for the next steps never stopped. Much was learned from Artemis 1 and is still being learned that helps us to prepare for the next flight test with humans on board. The Stakes are ever higher, but luckily there's a dedicated team ensuring that mission control is ready. To walk us through what was learned from Artemis 1 and what we're doing right now to evolve and prepare for Artemis 2 and beyond, we have the lead flight directors for the Artemis 2 mission, Zeb Scoville, currently acting, and Jeff Radigan, who will soon take on a permanent lead for the Artemis 2 mission operations from here in Mission Control Houston. All right. Let's go ahead and get started. Enjoy. He
1: minus 5
0: seconds and counting. Mark, the fashion starters. He's their responsible lifestyle shirt from the goes, Houston, We have a podcast. Zeb and Jeff, thank you so much for coming on Houston Urban Podcast.
1: Good to be here. It's awesome to be here. Thank you.
0: All right, very good. Zeb, welcome back. We've had you on for, for demo two. It's a while ago at this point, right? And now we're t- at the time that we're recording this, Crew Six has already launched. Crew seven is next. So it's it's been a bit since we've had you on.
1: It's been a hot minute. You know, I think about <laughs> I think about the time during demo two and when we were designing that mission and that mission concept, we'd think about, you know, we really have to think way ahead to to crew seven, and because we want to make sure that that the system still
0: works, then and now it is crew 7. And, 7's and the here thing, we right? are, <laughs> to
1: launch.
0: <laughs> awesome! So it's been a bit. What have you been up to? So, so you were the lead flight director for Demo Two. What have you been up to up to now?
1: Uh, after crew, after Demo Two, I took a rotation into the commercial crew program, where I was um, assistant to the de- to um, the division for uh, FOD. So Mm -hmm. I was representing the flight operations director to the to the program on technical issues um, as we go and build and certify and complete um, all the execution of those missions. I came back and I was, uh, if you remember, Holly Ridings um, Mm -hmm. ended up going on a rotation for a a bit of a while, which turned into a a permanent uh, position as the uh, deputy of the gateway program. So during that time, I was uh, the acting chief of the flight director office. Uh, and then uh, now I'm the deputy chief and Emily Nelson's taking over the chief role. Um, and I, I um, have been fortunate enough to um, slide into another role as acting as the acting lead of Artemis two while um, Jeff is going to learn how to do some, some financial work on the gateway side and he'll be coming back and, and Flying this upcoming mission, so.
0: very cool. Well, it's good to have you, and I definitely want to circle back on all of that experience. You touched a little bit of pretty much every human spaceflight program, so so we'll we'll definitely circle back and dive deeper into that. Jeff, it sounds like you're you're have a, a rotation going on now.
2: Yeah, I, I do. So uh, I, I've I was the Artemis two lead flight director for the last oh geez, it's been three years now. Wow, and uh, you know every every once in a while you need a break and you need to go make sure you're keeping your skills. Sharp and uh, so I'm off uh, rotating through the Gateway program planning and control area. It's all of the financial work, which uh, of course this is budget season for the government, which is a had very fast and furious uh, pace. Which is good to learn something new, right? My whole experience has been in ops, so learning the financial aspects of building spacecraft has been something new to me. And it was nice to have this short break, as you can call it that, when I'm off learning something new. Um, but it, it was definitely needed. And then uh, I'll come back here at the end of the year and working on Artemis 2.
0: You got to get through the this budget season and then mm-hmm. once you stamp it and once you have all the budget ready then you're going to come back and do Artemis 2. Yep, that's okay. that's the idea. All right, very cool. Uh now I think it's important to to circle back and just saying your role as as a flight director, right? Um, both of you are flight directors and that means that you have to maintain these skills. So so Jeff, even though you're off doing, you know, working on budgets, are you still doing shifts in mission control?
2: Absolutely. I'll be yeah. there next week. Probably <laughs> right. when this airs, it'll have already passed. But, yeah. uh, yep, I'll be flying a space station. That's what I do in my spare time. Yeah. So, it, it's, a, it's a cool In gig. your spare time. In my spare that's, time. Yeah,
0: that's good. And, Zeb, you got a shift coming up tonight. Yeah, so it's, I've, I've got matter. about an
2: hour and a half before <laughs> I've got to take over
1: the console for ISS. And, uh, you know, the interesting thing that I really love about the flight director role is, you know, we're talking about the Artemis programs and... Uh, building a space station around the moon called Gateway, mm-hmm. and getting the Orion vehicle to launch on top of the SLS, and we're, you know, have suit contracts going to the surface, and we have all of that amazing like exploration development that's going on. Well, at the same time, we're flying ISS, and we get to to work in the commercial crew program. So as a flight director, we get to touch and operate in all of these different elements, really every aspect of of human spaceflight. And so the, what's I think particularly rewarding. For me, and I think I hope valuable for the agency, is that while you have these programs which have to have people completely embedded into the the deep dive technical issues of their system to make sure that this avionics box is tested and certified and built and paid for and and assembled on the vehicle and ready to go, we can have people in the ops world that are able to to bridge the gap across those programs to find mm. what what's working really well with with commercial crew and what's working really well with ISS and what's our experience we learned from Artemis one. And we can apply some of those best practices and, uh, and, and those lessons learned for things that, that may not have gone so well so that we can make the best program going forward, because it's going to go nonlinear with Artemis with the new elements and programs coming together and we've got to be ready.
0: I love that. And and that's a, bouncing right off of that Zeb is where exactly I wanted to start was, was talking about Artemis one. Um, because Artemis One, uh, just you know, we we talk about it a lot. We've put out a lot. Of, we've analyzed it a lot, and and a lot of people at this point have said that it was a successful flight test. Meaning, we learned a lot from it, um, and I'm sure you guys did too. Now, the thing is, going into it, you had all this work going into the operations of the mission itself. Um, and Jeff, you already mentioned that even it sounded like throughout Artemis One, you were constantly thinking about Artemis Two. And so how yeah. plugged in were, were you with the planning for Artemis 1, with planning for Artemis 2, all the while doing exactly as Zeb was saying, pulling from the knowledge of other programs, lessons learned to apply to Artemis 1?
2: All of these missions build on one another, right? And and so that's something that we keep in mind as we're going forward. And, uh, you know, there's multiple flight directors working all of the missions. You know, for example, we both sat console on Artemis 1 mm. and, and flew the spacecraft uh, while that was was mission was occurring. So, it's important to us that, that we keep in mind it's all building blocks. So Artemis One, you know, a crude—I'm fl- sorry—an uncrewed flight test, which was you know roughly seventy percent of the systems on Orion that we'll have going forward. Uh, it was a big deal to go check all of those out, and by and large, the spacecraft and, and the SLS rocket that took us to space both performed very very well, and so it was good to see those in action. But you never really know until you get over there um, and you know, you know watch it, and then. While the Artemis One team was working, we've got a whole separate set of folks working on, you know, what I call that last thirty percent, which is all the crewed systems, right? The life support, mm-hmm. the crew interfaces. Uh, we couldn't not we couldn't wait till now to go work on those. Um, we had to make sure that those were in development even as we were flying Artemis one. And so there's a, a lot of lot of things to go work.
0: And so from your perspective, when you're when you have this overlap of, of working on Artemis One, you planning for Artemis two for as long as you were. Is that where the bulk of your time is spent? Coming up, understanding the systems, coming up with the flight rules that are necessary to add the human into the mix.
2: It is, it is, and that's why you know we have multiple flight directors working on these these missions. Um, you know, my job as the Artemis Two lead, in some ways, was to make sure that the Artemis One guys were able to go do their job, right? And we weren't mm-hmm. thinking too far ahead yep. that we were letting you know the Artemis One folks get their flight rules and procedures all ready to go and not complicating things too much with all the things to come. But then, of course, once Artemis One lands, now you know we're the one up at the plate, and so we have to bring in that work that was on the on the back burner for a while and really uh, get that front and center.
0: When it comes to the flight rules from Artemis One, the non-human parts, is there some rework that has to be done in order to include the human, or is it just as simple as copy paste into Artemis Two?
2: Well, it's not as simple as copy paste. We'll start <laughs> if only there. it were. If only it were. <laughs> we'd, we'd save some time and effort. But yeah. the the risk difference is really where I think you know where I think we should focus the conversation. Okay. Because you know, Artemis One was an uncrewed test flight. We really put those systems through a lot of uh, environments that um, we knew we were going to take more risk. And the agency decided that you know if if we lost the vehicle, it was worth the risk uh, to learn about the spacecraft, learn about the lunar environment, learn about the reentry environment. You know, that was the, the risk trade that was made that we would not do the same thing with humans on board the spacecraft. And mm-hmm. so now we have to go reevaluate those flight rules in light of the fact that we have a crew on board, right? And our, our first goal is to get them home safely. So we just have to, to really reassess how much risk are we willing to take and when do we need to, you know, perhaps shorten the mission or, or abort and come home in light of the fact that the crew's on board.
0: It has to do with uh, pushing Orion to the limit, right? For Artemis 1, that's what we wanted to do. We really wanted to push that spacecraft. And so maybe within the flight rules designed within it is you, you, you push it, you really push it. Whereas you that pushing it has some risk of and compromise to safety. And that's just a no-go as soon as you put a human on board.
2: Yeah, that's, that's a good way to frame it. Yeah.
1: So, so let me extrapolate on that though, looking towards future Artemis missions. Okay. The complexity Uh, And the risk uh, envelope for those is going to get higher, right? We're going to be going with the crews into a more complex uh, near rectilinear halo orbit, which basically once you get in, you've got six days where you've got to go all the way around the orbit to be able to get the crew out of it. You're going to include a lander, which has to go land on the surface, uh, EVA suits. There's going to be a substantial um, mission risk associated with that. Mm -hmm. And so I really look at Artemis II, and Jeff and I have talked about this, that that the the Artemis 2 job is to buy down as much of the risk that we can um, on this mission um, from those future missions so that they're not having to, for the first time, understand the risk of uh, rendezvous and prox ops, for example. So we have a test on this mission where we're going to do some manual flying capability to show that if the automated system fails, this is what the handling qualities are like. This is, you know, the crew taking manual control and how it flies. This is real test pilot kind of stuff. We're going to yeah. be looking at, you know, setting up um, makeshift radiation shelters if there was uh, an event during this mission. So we're ready for that if we ever need it. We're going to practice depressing the cabin and repressing the cabin to a lower uh, pressure to ten point two psi, mm-hmm. knowing that that we can test these things. We have we can take on some of that risk on Armors too, so that we're more informed about the overall risk going into three, four, five when it only gets more complex.
0: How far can you get in terms of reducing that risk when it comes to, um, and I'm, I'm thinking about this from the perspective of their different mission profiles, right? For Artemis II, you're swinging around the moon. You, ne- you never enter into the near rectilinear, re- rectilinear halo orbit. So what can you design within the mission profile of Artemis II to draw down that risk and, and try to understand as as much as possible what it's going to be like in near rectilinear halo orbit?
1: So some of the things I think about are the the crew systems. So I want to know, are the life support systems able to sustain? Are, are, mm. are they having effective control for CO2 scrubbing? Are they able to manage the humidity while the crew is exercising in the small cabin? Um, are, are we able to have the toilet work effectively? Is the cabin and stowage management in there able to work? Is the crew able to control the stowage for landing so that we're able to keep the the CG within the box for loading. Are we able to um, have crew piloting control to be able to have them recover lost communications so that they can reacquire our you know, tracking communications with the Earth? So th- there's a fair amount that we can do. We are limited a little bit by the fact that we are only flying Orion, and we have mm. um, we don't we can't bring a lander into this mission. We're not bringing in mm. a gateway into this mission, so we can't naturally test those aspects of it. Um, we have a lot of experience from. The, the guidance and navigation from Artemis 1 um, in, dur- in terms of being able to know, you know, this is where Orion is, this is where it's going, how can we track that? And we, we learned some lessons there and we'll pick up more of that on, on this mission. Um, but as much as we can do in Artemis 2, we're, we're going gonna to do while well keeping the crew safe.
2: I think the, the biggest goal is, as you look at Artemis 3, 4, and 5, we want to ensure that the new pieces on those missions are the only challenges we're facing on those missions and not we have carryover from Artemis two of things that we just didn't try or didn't think about. So you know, Zeb and I are spending our time you know, talking and working with the teams on filling every minute of this mission with Orion checkouts so that they're known quantities, even if they're not fully successful, they're things that we know we have to work or have figured out so that when we get a lander, when we get gateway, those are the only new things we're having to deal with. Mm,
0: okay. Is 10-ish days enough then with, uh, with what you want to accomplish? Or are you still looking into it?
2: I would tell you we will put as much content into 10 days as possible. <laughs> if we had 11 or 12, we would, we would add. But, okay. uh, you know, trajectory-wise, that's not really uh, what we're looking at, right? We're looking at 10 days.
0: Zeb mentioned... Um Lessons learned from Artemis One, right? Obviously, you guys are pulling quite a bit from that lesson. We've uh, we've had time after the mission to digest. You you yourselves said that you sat in on the mission and got to understand what it's like um, to to perform a lunar mission operation. What are some of those key things that we're pulling from Artemis One to bring into the next Artemis missions?
2: You know, I would start again with the fact that the Orion spacecraft uh, worked worked fantastic when we were sitting on console. Uh, you know, looking at the solar array power generation, uh, the the sun mm-hmm. is always on in in lunar space, and uh, it's a, a way to, you know, ensure we've got the power systems working. Uh, the thermal environment was a, a little more benign than we expected. Our heaters weren't coming on nearly as much as as we thought they might need to, which was good, right? That'll give us more power for uh, payloads and and science objectives when we go fly those in future missions. You know, Zeb mentioned the orbital navigation. Uh, you know, figuring out where you are in space is actually a, a tough problem. I think everybody's gotten very used to GPS. Uh, <laughs> and of course, uh, there's no GPS around the moon yet. Yeah. yet. Ah. Uh, perhaps one day there will be. But without that, uh, you know, we had to go back and and really relearn how to figure out where we were in space. And, uh, you know, I think we did that quite successfully. Uh, and our navigation systems worked worked quite well. So there was a lot of adjusting from... Low Earth orbit, where we've been flying human spacecraft for for a long time now, uh, and readjusting back to lunar space because it's a little bit different.
0: Zeb, how was that? You got to you you um did a you know as a flight director, you've been flying in low Earth orbit for pretty much your whole career, and now you get to experience what this is like. Was it was it fundamentally different? Was it a lot of the same? How how was it comparing? It was no.
1: gobsmackingly awesome. Let me just tell you. So, um, <laughs> right. you know, think one thing that stands out to mind, I will hold this forever, that a, a particular moment in Artemis 1 when, you know, they've launched, they're, um, you know, they're heading out. They had just burned TLI, uh, translunar in, injection burn. And we got some of the first video looking back at the Earth just for a moment. And it sort of faded down below to, to go out of the field of uh, view of the camera. But there was a just this moment where, like, we built this spaceship we're going to put people on it and everyone on earth is right there in that in that frame <laughs> um, and it just really brought home to me that this is happening this is not something that or this is something that has sustained uh, presidential administrations it's got partners on board and committed um, both international partners and commercial partners um, we've got contracts. We've got metal being cut to build all these elements, um, from from you know the rocket bodies to the space station to the landers and the suits. Right, mm-hmm. um, we're we're going. I mean, that's for sort of the catchphrase of the Artemis program, but <laughs> it was. Going. It really became apparent to me when I saw that moment, yeah. and then from you know at that moment I also realized we need to tell this story better. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing that we hadn't really appreciated was. The challenge of trying to balance the engineering telemetry data that we're trying to get down from all the systems on the spacecraft that we're looking at accelerations and prop usages and temperatures and you know manifold pressures and all these things. When really, also, what we wanted to make sure we had room for was some bandwidth for some some video to get down, not just the the, the images and stuff that we're going to downlink or going to you know download off the vehicle when it lands. But we no kidding have to show this story to the people, right? And so we, we set up a streaming service, right? And you may recall this, like we, we opened up um, some of the bandwidth to, to start making it live as much as we could. And, and I think that that is a, a lesson learned for me to make sure that you know we bring the world on Armist too, right?
0: You're preaching to the choirs, um, we, keep, we keep yelling at you guys. More bandwidth, more video. Right. Yeah,
1: but you know that—that's that. You know, unlike you know when we're in lower Thornton, we have TDRS, where we can go 600 megabytes a second, right? Yeah, we now have to adapt to the deep space network and the drop-off in bandwidth as we go to distances where we're talking at at full throttle. We can get six megabytes per second, mm. um, and that's subject to to losses due to due to coding and so forth, such that. Yeah, you know, we're working at, at some really interesting tests in Artemis 2 to be able to increase that. We've got a an hmm. optical comm system that we're gonna be testing for the first time, which we use a a laser um instead of an RF signal to transmit the data. So hopefully we'll be able to get some some pretty exciting high definition video and and the crew there to tell the story and and I I can't wait to show the world
0: oh yeah we're uh we i got my eyes locked on that one the the laser communications for sure because and we actually are trying to get someone on the podcast to talk about that because i'm like get me video (laughs) i (laughs) want (laughs) to i want to plead my case here but um yeah yeah Uh, jeff i think you know i i've i'm sure both of you uh you know appreciate a lot of the work that was done for apollo as well and i know you know looking watching the documentaries reading the books knowing the history there's that moment that a, a couple of flight directors a couple of historical figures have talked about of switching that map you know you've done all these tests in low earth orbit and for apollo 8 for example switching the map on the front room to earth and and moon in the same picture and now that's that's something that we are going to do repetitively that's something that you have to think about continuously i wonder if that's something that sort of if you if you so you see that you got to sit on console and be there for that moment. If you had sort of the same reactions as Zeb thinking like, gosh, this is this is happening.
2: I think when it really hit home for me was, was a, a little bit before the mission, um, as we were looking at what the communications with the vehicle would be. And uh, if you look at the maps in the control center, the vehicles always go from west to east, right? We launch in an easterly direction and we achieve orbit and then uh, that, that, that's just—that's the way every space vehicle goes, right? Because that's the way the, the world turns. But when you do TLI, if you put the spacecraft and you map it where it is on the earth, it starts going west and it just has this interesting behavior to where uh, we, we call it the hook is, is the colloquial term. To where after you do TLI, the trajectory basically makes a hook, in our case over Africa, and starts going, what in my mind is the wrong direction. It's like, wow, how are we going west? (laughs) Oh, we're not. We're just going higher and higher and higher towards the moon. And so you have to flip your frame of reference to, it's not low Earth orbit anymore. You're just getting further away from Earth, and the Earth is spinning below you, and that's why it looks like you're going west in an Earth reference frame but from the vehicle's reference frame again the world is just turning below you and you're mm-hmm. flying to the moon and to me that's the the point at which it really hit me like hey this is different
0: wow unbelievable when when it comes to the um when it comes to the process though now I'm I'm getting back into the, like the nitty-gritty a bit is just understanding we talked about le- Artemis 1 lessons learned but now I'm I'm thinking I'm thinking ahead I'm thinking about uh, Artemis 2 since Jeff you've been such a part a part of it for a long time and Zeb you are and will continue to be for throughout the throughout the year Artemis, to, You know how how do we prepare for that? What is it? What is it like? Is it is it constant simulations? Is it is it the conversations with the um, with technical folks? How do you how do you have the conversations to convince people that video is important when there are so many other drivers of telemetry and and you know subsystem folks that want to understand the telemetry coming from their system and they have to prioritize that. So what is it like? you know, as a leader sort of navigating that in terms of what Artemis II operations is going to look like?
2: It's really been a constant negotiation. I mean, that's, that's, Mm. I think, the way Zeb and I view our roles in that we're trying to get everything that's necessary. And uh, a lot of times folks will ask for more than they need, thinking that they won't get everything they want. And our job in some ways is kind of make sure that happens, that they get only what they need Mm. and not uh, anything extra and then it's, it's balancing priorities and time. So we have to go learn the systems. We've got a whole team of folks that are doing that and have been doing that for, for years uh, to really understand the way they operate. And then we you know, make suggestions because we're still in the design process. A lot of these systems, they've been through their, their critical design reviews, uh, but there's still you know, open questions in some of the software as it's being finalized uh, that we make inputs to in order to make the vehicle easier to operate. And so that's what we spend a lot of our, our time doing. What we will be doing in the future is then taking that and building the flight rules book for Artemis two, all mm-hmm. the procedures that we're going to need to operate the vehicle, and then just like Artemis One, we'll do a series of simulations to get the team ready to go fly the vehicle, and uh, and be ready for for the mission.
0: Okay, very lengthy process. I sort of put it in
1: you know in the lists of buckets of of activities you described. I would say some of, a little bit of all of the above. Mm. Um, so, Jeff mentioned the procedure development, the flight rule development, and you know, trying to to balance objectives and priorities and and requirements. Right? I would say it's also getting hands on the hardware and talking to the engineers and going out and testing the hatch and and being with um, the recovery teams at the vessels to see what that process is going to look like when you when you're getting the crew out of the boat and having the crew go through suited tests um, in the cabin and. Pre-launch dress rehearsals. But then also you think about Artemis one. We demonstrated that the crew that the ground can fly this vehicle without a crew on board. Right.
2: Hmm.
1: Added the crew into the picture. What procedures do we want the crew to execute versus the ground? We want the capabilities so that the crew can also demonstrate they can fly the entire vehicle back home without us. So if we lost calm, they can be the masters of their own destiny. Hmm. Um, you know, we've showed we can do it. We need to show that they can do it. Um and you know, within those procedures, all those things that we had as had as, you know, ground commanding procedures we need to now implement onto things that are executable by the crew in their displays. And um I think there's a lot of crew capabilities and interfaces that that there's no substitute for putting your hands on hardware for making the sure that the actions you can do while you're suited, strapped into that seat, um, to make sure that's sort of an end to end a mission profile that that comes together. So as as many hands as we can shake for the people that that build that hardware and then show it to us is is what our job is I think from here to launch.
0: There's uh there's an interpersonal component too. I know um you know we 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 keep talking about the crew and and we talk about the procedures and stuff, but I know I know Zeb uh, when the Artemis 2 crew was announced, you guys got to you guys got to meet them, shake hands and and sort of get some face-to-face time with them and i wonder if it sort of sank with you in that moment when you guys were were talking and meeting and i'm I'm sure it was it was a joyous occasion right but just the gravity of understanding like exactly what you're saying like you know they they are the masters of their own destiny to a certain extent and that you have to make sure that you have the the processes the the procedures and, and you have a the best understanding of what this mission is and can be and you're preparing for the future but you understand you know the risks that go in with that that interpersonal connection of looking the person in the eye and saying, "I'm don't worry, I'm going to take care of you." I wonder if that's a component of it too.
1: We cannot ask for a better crew. I mean, we could fly armist too with anyone in the astronaut office. It's across the board a great group. Yeah. This this crew, I am particularly excited with. Um, I've known them all for a long time, um, and they gel together. Um, I think that that Jeff and I have all had. You know experiences with them at a, at a personal level and a technical level and you know just as much as um you know we'll have their back they've got our back as well um and that's that comes down to trust mm-hmm. and you know i'm glad to know that we've got it in spades
0: and Jeff, that, that's true for the team too, right? I mean, we have, you have to make sure that you have experienced and trustworthy flight controllers at your side every, every step of the way. And that's why you're doing the sims. That's why you're training across the board. And so, um, you know, what are you doing now really guess, for Artemis 2 to make sure that you're going to have a trustworthy, ready-to-go team by the time we fly?
2: yeah and and it's you hit on it right trust is is what really holds any operations team together right whether it's in human spaceflight or whether it's it's somewhere else uh you know at this point we've got a number of folks who have been working this mission for years like i have Mm. and they've gotten opportunities to go meet the engineers who are designing the vehicle or who design the vehicle the folks that are building it to really build trust with those people as well so that we're able to communicate effectively. You know, trust leads to good communication to really fully understand the system so that we can make good decisions. I know we'll have some additional folks joining the team as time goes on. There's always a little bit of turnover in any operations team. Uh, And that's why we have have the training regiment that we do in order to to bring folks in, get them integrated with the team. But uh, it's really the folks that have been with us for a while on this mission that are going to hang around till the end I mean that's hmm. that's those are my right hand folks and you know I, Zeb can probably talk about it because you know he took my my team and he's running it now and it seemed to be be pretty flawless from what I've been able to see that they' front the tape ship <laughs> <laughs> the team is prime. they know their stuff <laughs> but it really comes down to that and, and I know yeah. they'll treat the crew the same way it, it's it's always int- it's interesting to hear you talk about the crew right because from my perspective these are folks that we've flown before. Um, okay. and so there, there wasn't maybe the new shine on, oh, these are the astronauts for, for Artemis too. It was all right. These are great astronauts. I'm really happy to have them flying on too, but they're folks I already know and, uh, happy to work with again.
0: That's awesome. Um, I want to kind of lead into sort of the evolution of, of operations. Cause I think, um, You know, historically, I I, just learning from from my own selfish perspective on on commentary. I I pull from from folks who have done commentary before me to to learn how they did things. And the things I think that is has changed the most dramatically is, for me at least, is the number of spacecraft systems players that are involved in human human space flight. You got to learn about Dragon. You got to learn about uh, Starliner. You got to learn about the cargo vehicles, spacesuits. Um, now Orion, uh, we have to think about the HLS. We have to think about all these different components. I wonder how you guys balance it. Cause, uh, you know, Jeff, I know you're talking about, um, the Orion and you want to make sure Orion is prepared, right? But it's not like the flight control teams in general are ignoring HLS operations and gateway operations. And you guys are thinking about it, right? There's, you have to plan actively for that. How do you balance, the huge variety of spacecraft systems, um, flight flight rules, and and everything it's it seems to be a more dynamic time than ever.
2: There's a core set of spaceflight systems and spaceflight knowledge that we all have to have, mm. and that really apply to any vehicle we fly. And we I think we start there is really okay. um, where we we have our, our I think of it as core set. You know, uh, there's multiple prop systems, but they're all propellant to you know you put Delta V into the vehicle to, to move it around there's life support systems they all keep the crews alive now the specifics of those are different and so that's where understanding the core principles at first and then really trusting our team because I'll be, I'll be honest with you I can't keep up with every detail of every uh, vehicle that we fly but that's why we have a team that's why we have dedicated folks to go Specifically, learn the ISS ECLIS components or specifically work and interface with SpaceX and the entire SpaceX team for their ECLIS equipment. You know, we've got folks that have learned and are learning Orion. We'll have the same thing for HLS and Gateway. So, it really, I think you have to start with that firm foundation hmm. and then each and every time make sure you get the right experts on your team for the vehicle you're flying and ensure that they've got time to train appropriately right i think that's what zeb and i worry about a fair amount is ensuring that we've got folks time to go get smart on those systems uh yes they're they're competent at that that core understanding as i mentioned but we got to get guys into the details and really have those uh on our teams
1: what i think is particularly super cool about leaving low earth orbit and going on a mission like artemis 2 is finding the differences from those systems mm-hmm. right so mm-hmm. Um, I was in a, a meeting this morning talking about the rendezvous profile to dock Orion to Gateway. And some of the differences when you're not trying to rendezvous in a low-Earth orbit where you've got a 90-minute period, all of a sudden you don't have these relative velocities that will bring the vehicles apart or separate them because there are different altitudes. Like You basically can fly straight and true in a, in a NRHO orbit you know, for miles and miles and miles, right? Because uh, you don't have the Earth's gravity perturbing it in the same way. You have, when you have a mission that's nine days instead of six months, how you treat the crew in terms of um, psychological support for long duration expeditions versus a nine day sprint mission where we're going to be pushing them and pushing the vehicle to its limits changes how um we plan and schedule their day what sort of debriefs we need to be able to get from them what sort of um, rest periods we need to be able to factor in and so like looking to make sure we don't apply we apply the right lessons from past programs Hmm. but don't apply patterns which may not always be applicable And, and those little differences are what really make it in my mind interesting to to see how those evolve Based on the environment,
0: that is fascinating. Um, if you think about Artemis missions beyond that too, right? So Artemis two, you're, you're you're quoting nine days, ten days. It's around that area. It's really short duration, which you're recategorizing. We've talked a lot of six month expeditions as marathons. Now we're talking about a sprint. Mm-hmm. And so I wonder, you know, for for Artemis missions going forward, you know, is it is it that same mentality, um, or, or you know, is there is there this growth period where Artemis missions get progressively longer? Maybe not to six months, but you start have to having some kind of nice mix of the sprint and the marathon and those sorts of things.
2: I think we're getting into the, the relay race as the track uh, mm. analogy here where mm. you've got a long first day. You know, the crew's got to go through launch and we've got uh, TLI to get them on their way. And then you've got a few days of, you know, getting ready to, uh, to get into lunar orbit, whether it's the NRHO or, you know, some of the other burns that are there. But there's not a lot else to do. And so it's kind of a, just a, you know, a calm before the storm. And then once you hit the gateway or lander, then you're on you know, another one of those sprints where you're going down to the surface and you gotta make sure you get down safely. And then we'll have six-ish days on the surface. Hmm. Well, that's a, lot of, that's a lot of time that we need to go do the EVAs and then get the crew back to the vehicle and it's gonna be a hard charging time. But once you undock gateway, now you've got a five day ride home that there's not a lot going on. So you got a little bit of time to rest again, uh, all before you get into reentry, which is obviously a, a dynamic time frame. So mm. there's some really active, really heavy times, but then there's also some times where I think the crew can, can catch their breath, where the ground team can catch our breath and then prepare for the next activity. So it's really gonna be a, a series of sprints rather than a, a marathon.
0: Okay. That's a good way. Yeah, and the marathon is the every day on Space Station, you're mm-hmm. at your whatever, 10, 12 hours. You got your workouts. You got to make sure you get through it all. And there's a lot of science to do that you have to get through. Um, and then everything has to play off of each other in terms of priority. Um, is is there anything that, uh, you know, when you're talking about things to do, things to check on on Artemis, um, you know, are, are you? what are you doing to make sure – that you can go into it with a certain level of confidence jeff you mentioned um one of the goals here for artemis 2 is to make sure that for artemis 3 you've done as much as possible to make sure orion is ready that you can think about orion for future artemis missions what are you who are you going to to check on to make sure that you you have the confidence in that. Are you looping in the human research folks? Are you looping in the, you know, like the right subsystem folks? What do you have to do to give yourself that confidence that you can say, you know what, Orion's ready for for future Artemis missions?
2: So we put a call out a few years ago to talk about uh, test, you know, test objectives that we would, we would put on Orion. Mm. Uh, our operations team came up with a list of things that we thought would be valuable, but you know, sometimes, you know, we come up with a test and, and, you know, maybe the engineering team wants to tweak it or maybe the health and human performance folks, the, the crew health folks want to tweak it, which is a good thing, right? We really want all the eyes to make sure that we're able to get the best tests we can. And so those are, have been developed and I, I think they'll continue to get tweaked as we go forward mm. um, to ensure that we're really getting the, the best tests we can. And so those are run past our engineering folks here at NASA. Um, and, and as well as our medical folks, there is another piece of it though, which is you know more forward looking. What are we going to do on Artemis three that we don't have to do on Artemis two, and can we do as much of that on two as possible? Right? Zeb mentioned the the cabin depress. We don't we don't need to depress the cabin on Artemis two. We can keep it at fourteen seven the whole flight, but we are going to have to depress it to dock to Gateway and the lander. So is that something we can do and we it is something we are going to do on Artemis 2 to go ensure that we've got the right procedures in place to depress and repress the cabin we think that's a a good activity to ensure that we fully understand those systems and uh, we can do that not because it's necessary for Artemis 2 but because it's necessary for Artemis 3 and beyond Hmm. to be able to do those missions and so that's what we're really trying to look at you know proxops for Artemis 3 Artemis 4 that's why we have the ProxOps demo on Artemis 2 uh, and we're going to fly the Orion around the ICPS is not because we need it again for Artemis 2 but because the Artemis campaign, the future Artemis missions are going to need our knowledge that was gained on 2.
0: Yeah, very interesting. Um, you know, there's a, lot, there's a lot of rabbit holes that I think we can, we can go down when it comes to the operations. Um, I do want to keep it, you know, more high level so that we're not... Um, you know, we, we can get into some of the, like, the, the deeper sort of nitty-gritty things, but I think uh, in general, I think one of the things to, to take away from this is just that um, this is happening, um, that Artemis 1 already happened and that we have a crew that we can look into their eyes and say, you're going to be flying to the moon um, and that we're having these conversations now. One of the things that we, we talk about a lot when it comes to Artemis is um, you know, the whole moon to Mars idea um and i think uh, a lot of this conversation so far we've been thinking about the moon and preparing for the moon and, and it's uh, to me having that grounded perspective is something that um i, I certainly appreciate because time and time again I, I we keep talking about this moon to mars thing but i'm sure it's ingrained in the flight operations um team as well. That you guys are, you know, when you think about the next step, when you think about how Artemis 2 leads to Artemis 3 and beyond, um, that you're also thinking about how everything we're doing now will eventually lead to humans on Mars and that this these steps are the right ones to take. I wonder if you guys have a sense of appreciation for that and are maybe even thinking that far ahead purposefully as you are going through the Artemis or um, you know, uh, just or maybe it's lost uh, as yeah. as you as you get it's not uh, lost. Yeah, one hundred percent. <laughs> <100%, laughs> okay, very right? cool. But
1: but there's some nuance there, right? I mean, I think the the wrong way to interpret that question would be that we're going to the moon only to practice an operation so that we can go to Mars, right? Okay, we're going to the moon to go to the moon. Let's be very clear about that. There okay. is a lot that we're going to be able to get out of the moon and the capabilities that we're going to get from the South Pole region. Um, both from the scientific resources, the mineral resources, the the volatile resources that potentially allow us to take the the south polar ice. You know, I I can break that down to hydrogen and oxygen. Last time I checked, that's the recipe for water and rocket fuel. Um, With that, you know, we can potentially learn how to get cryogenic fuel off of the south pole of the moon, out of the gravity well of the Earth, and that will like, enable humans to be interplanetary and potentially be a fuel source to be able to take us to Mars, mm-hmm. right? Yes, absolutely. It's sort of like you have to have the, the decadal vision that, that we want to have humans on the surface of Mars. Um, but that does not make the moon just a practice uh, short-term you know, test grounds on the way. Yeah. There are um, areas on the far side of the moon that are shielded from the radio frequency noise of the Earth. So you can have radio telescopes that can have the most pure view of the universe um, without the, the noise from the Earth's transmissions. There are, um, there are volatiles from comets that crashed into the South Pole of the Moon that are go back you know, 4.5 billion years ago, original you know, you know, ice from those comets that were able to, as I said, extract volatiles. The impact history of the Moon is identical to that of the Earth all of those craters that are on the Moon, um, the same frequency hit the Earth. It just got eroded and absorbed by the atmosphere or by tectonic plates or by rain and by, and by wind. But we can go look at that and understand what the Earth has been through as well when this perfectly preserved record of, four, of you know 4.5 billion years of history, right? So, yes, we are going to Mars. And with that, when we get to Mars, like the whole, you know, nonlinear you know, expansion of, of discovery we're going to be able to have there both for exploration um, and, and taking the human race to Mars. But, but don't let it be lost that we are going to the moon also to go to the moon.
0: I think that's an important perspective, and I think in a lot of conversations we've had, we've maybe lost sight of that a little bit. And so I appreciate that. That's that's an awesome perspective to really bring it back to the moon. Ze- um, Jeff, I wonder if you have the same sort of thoughts, maybe on the moon, or maybe you are maybe f- forward linking, to, to, forward looking to Mars.
2: Well, I, I think Zeb covered the moon, <laughs> so <laughs> maybe I'll take the other part of the question, which right. is which is how do we, how do we keep going, right? If yeah. If you take a look at, and I think of it in risk management, right, in low-Earth orbit, we can be back on Earth in a couple of hours. In lunar space, it's going to be a week or more to getting back on on Earth. And in Martian space, it's going to be six months till you can get home. The, the amount that you have to sustain yourself as a crew in a vehicle just grows as, you know, the further away from, from Earth we get. And that transition is really what we're learning here. Mm-hmm. Um, I know a, a lot of of our folks going through the Artemis II development have kind of made that mental shift, but there's there's more to go because you know on Artemis II we can get back in anywhere from two to five days, uh, you know, worst case return time. As we get into the NRHO, it's going to be you know seven eight days home. That's a long time, and so your mindset has to change from. Do we need to do everything we can to get home as possible? To hold on, I got to stabilize where I'm at. Right, mm-hmm. I have to be able to handle, uh, you know, whether it's a failure case or whether it's an unforeseen situation. I don't have the luxury of just returning to home as fast as possible. I have to be self sufficient, and that concept, that shift, is what's going to get us to Mars because we have to be self sufficient to be able to to trans, you know, go over the distance between the Earth and, and Mars. So we have to make that shift. We have to keep going on that. The moon is is the next step. Uh, it's not the first step, but it's the next step. Yeah. And uh, we have to be able to, to just, again, be more self-sufficient with the spacecrafts, uh, which leads to the operations team on the ground figuring out how can we support the crew in the spacecraft rather than you know fly from the ground. We've gotten kind of used to flying the space station from the ground and some of the other satellites from the ground, and we're going to have to get back to how do we best prepare the crew and the vehicle to fly on their own? And then, you know, we're the the troubleshooters that they can call for help, but it's uh, it's them and the spacecraft flying itself.
0: It is a shift, isn't it? There's a certain level of discomfort because there's almost an ease in knowing that you can do things real time, you can mm-hmm. control things from the ground, you can relieve the crew, but it is sort of a shift. And in a way, I guess, to me, I would think that it's kind of uh, a good like you say, shift in the mentality that it would take for sustained operations. Is it fair to say that, you know, the more that we do Artemis missions, the more that we do that, the more that those procedures are refined and the better prepared we are for Mars?
2: I think if we do it the right way, the answer is yes. And I I think it's gonna take us having to, you know, perhaps put our ego and pride aside a Mm -hmm. little bit and say, okay, what's what's best for the long-term mission that is an operations team that is in some ways on call to a vehicle and a crew that has to sustain themselves. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's just a little little bit different. If we do this the right way, it's absolutely great preparation for going to Mars. It's, it's gonna teach us a lot about how we're gonna go do that successfully. If we treat it as a, a time delayed low earth orbit where we call the ground for everything that's not really setting us up for long-term success. And so Mm -hmm. we have to make sure that we have the right mentality going in.
0: And so, Zeb, bringing it back to the moon, you spoke so passionately about the moon. I, I wonder how it builds, how Artemis builds on itself in a way. If you think about it, Artemis 1, Artemis 2, a lot of these are sort of the stepping stones. We're doing Artemis II. We call it a flight test because that's what it is. We're making sure the system is ready for those future Artemis missions. But the idea is that it's a sustained program, and then it gets increasingly more complicated, and you can try new things. You could do some of the lunar excursions. You could stay there for longer periods, and it just sort of keeps building and building and building. Um, thinking about that and preparing for that. Uh, that, is It's. It, is it fair to characterize it as an ever-evolving thing, and how are we tackling that?
1: In many ways, it reminds me of the uh, early ISS assembly days where mm. each shuttle mission might be happening a few months uh, after the previous one, and it's going to bring up a new laboratory module or a new truss segment or a new solar arrays or new radiators or new you know power systems going to be reconfigured. And so each flight of that vehicle keeps evolving, and with it comes new systems and new capabilities. Now take that and and look at that. Uh, on an exponential scale with with uh, Artemis, and you bring in the lander and the partnership with SpaceX there for the first one. There's going to be a, a second partnership um, for future landers on the Artemis 5 timeframe. Um, you bring in all the international uh, and commercial partners to the Gateway Program, and that's going to take an assembly uh, sequence itself. Um, it'll be a smaller scale than ISS, but still nonetheless, it'll have evolving capabilities that that get built into that um, the the lunar surface I really believe is where there's also going to be a similar uh, growth of capabilities not just for the NASA missions um, that are that are for humans but there will be the Clips missions bringing logistics um, there will be communication infrastructure potentially being put into orbit and on the ground um, there will be uh, potentially you know, commercial missions that are going to, to uh, the surface regions. And and there'll be, as I said, multiple landers, multiple suit developers. Is there eventually gonna be a, a lunar uh, habitat that is more long-term? Do How the, the duration of the stay uh, goes from the six days that Jeff talked about to potentially 30 days or even longer. Um, that is going to be something that at the cost and effort of each mission, we don't have the luxury of not Expanding mm. the capability rapidly on each mission. We can't repeat the missions without growing each time because it's such a, an investment by um, all the the partner nations and companies to be able to do this. That we've got to grow quick and we've got to learn it fast.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think of the space station that way. That it's it's not necessarily the same thing, but it is. I mean, we. It's it's a very it's a very refined process, and we have these long expeditions to continue to do science, right? They go up there. The mission is science, but it is sort of different, Artemis being in that way that uh, it, it like we can see increasingly complex. We're trying new things every single mission, like you're saying, and it's a very exciting time. I'm definitely looking forward to it. Zeb and Jeff, thank you so much for coming on Houston. We have a podcast. This was a fascinating discussion. Lots of work ahead uh, to prepare for Artemis II and beyond. And you guys are the right folks to do it. So I appreciate your time.
2: Yeah. Thank you. My
1: pleasure. It'll be here before you know it. <laughs> That's true. i got to get back to work. See you later. <laughs> all right. Houston, <laughs> go ahead.
0: Stop up
1: the space shuttle. Roger.
0: Zero T and I feel fine. Shuttle heads the time. a state for all mankind. It's actually a huge honor to break a record like this. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard.
2: Never to. Welcome to space.
0: Hey, thanks for sticking around. I really enjoyed my conversation today with Zeb and Jeff. I learned a lot and hope you did too. Uh, you can check out nasa.gov slash Artemis for the latest on everything going on with that program. And of course, if you just want to listen to podcasts, we are not the only one. You can go to nasa.gov slash podcast to check out some of the other great shows we have across the agency. If you do want to talk to us, though, uh, Houston, we have a podcast. We're on the Johnson Space Center pages of Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform to submit an idea for the show or maybe ask a question. Just make sure to mention it's for us. At Houston, we have a podcast. This episode was recorded on April 19th, 2023. Thanks again to Will Flato, Pat Ryan, Heidi Lavelle, Belinda Polito, and Jane Jennings. And of course, thanks again to Zeb Scoville and Jeff Radigan for taking the time to come on the show. Give us a rating and feedback on whatever platform you're listening to us on and tell us what you think of our podcast. We'll be back next week.